So, it's been a year. Um, it's a real pleasure to speak to you uh, this year. It's a much greater pleasure than it was last year, given the state of the economic outlook. When I talked to you last year, economic activity was contracting um, pretty sharply, in fact. Um, but I thought it was reasonable then uh, to um, view it as likely to that, that we, we'd see positive growth in the second half of last year. Um, but despite that, even though I thought there would be positive growth, there was substantial uncertainty in my mind around that outlook. In particular, I thought it was possible we'd see a, a, a deeper contraction, uh, that, that that had at least some probability you ought to put on it. In the end, though, we did see positive momentum in the second half of last year. In the third quarter, uh, real GDP growth exceeded 2%. And most economists now are, are, are believing that when the NBER Business Cycle Dating Committee gets together to do its work, it will decide that the end of the recession uh, came sometime in the middle of last year. <clears throat> now, um, that is good news, um, that we've begun a recovery, that economic activity has begun expanding. But the... The thing I have to admit is that um, the level of economic activity is awfully low. Um, in particular, uh, the unemployment rate's quite high. Many households and firms are doing uh, with less than they had before, less by way of income or revenue than they had um, just a year or two ago. And in addition, there's substantial economic challenges ahead, um, even as we come out of this uh, recovery um, and into an expansion phase of the business cycle. And I'll comment on a couple of these. Uh, I'll just call these out at the end. But having said that, I do believe growth is, has uh, returned um, and uh, that we're going to see positive growth this year. So this, uh, in my remarks this year, I'll be talking about the economic outlook for growth and inflation in the year ahead. Um, before I begin, I should note that my remarks, as always, uh, re reflect just my views and not necessarily those of my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. So last year when we spoke, um, I spent a fair amount of time on um, a list of factors that appear to have contributed uh, to the decade-long boom in housing and housing finance uh, that proceeded and appeared to contribute substantially uh, to the recession and the associated financial market turmoil that we've seen over the last couple of years. So that list briefly included uh, historically strong growth in productivity, output per hour, which ultimately passes through to growth in real income and to the demand for housing uh, by our consumers. Low long-term real interest rates, uh, particularly in the middle of the decade. Technologically driven improvements in the delivery at the retail level of credit uh, to consumers. Um, that lowered borrowing spreads and expanded access to credit. And a, a regulatory regime, which in my view probably did not adequately contain the moral hazard that's associated with the perceptions uh, that are widespread and were widespread at the beginning of this decade in financial markets that many large financial institutions uh, would uh, be too big to fail, would benefit for government support. And I say especially, um, I'd cite especially uh, the two large housing uh, finance uh, government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now, I'm not going to discuss this list of factors at length today. I just point them out to you um, and caution you against monocausal explanations of what we've just been through, both the boom and the bust and the turmoil 
Um, I think that's a dangerous course of action. It was a complicated set of phenomena. It'll take a lot of research to really sort this out. So this recession that's just ended ranks as one of the deepest on record. Uh, and it was led by the plunge in, in, in housing construction uh, that came at the end of that boom. During the boom, prices almost tripled. Um, and, and we got to a point, though, in 2005 where the evidence was pretty clear that the run-up had gone too far, uh, that we'd sort of gotten ahead of ourselves. Vacancy rates in 2005, this is before it all uh, started uh, crumbling, Vacancy rates began to hit record highs uh, around that time. Measures of home construction and home sales started to fall, uh, at first gradually and then precipitously in 2006 and beyond. Home prices also began to decline in 2006, uh, and that reduced equity values, the value of households' equity in their homes and their wealth, so their overall wealth, uh, since home equity is a big part of housing wealth. And that led to rising defaults and foreclosures, which also uh, had an adverse effect on the economy. The layoffs we saw in residential construction uh, dampened growth in overall household income. So employment wasn't growing as rapidly as before. So household income wasn't growing as rapidly as before. And so that dampened growth in household consumption. This spread to the rest of the economy, sort of a multiplier effect. The things people spent money on, their demand wasn't growing as rapidly. And um, the expansion that we were seeing in economic activity officially ended in December of 2007. And the economy began contracting in January of 2008. And the recession that followed, as I said, was longer and deeper than any we've experienced since the 1930s. I could cite a slew of dismal statistics for this, but I'll, I'll focus on one in particular. The number of people, the total number of people with jobs in our country uh, has fallen by 7.2 million uh, from the, the peak of the expansion in December of 07 till uh, late last year, till December of um, last year. Virginia's portion of that job loss is 127,000 jobs lost, and that's a 3.4% drop in the number of employed persons in the state of Virginia. As I mentioned earlier, the contraction in overall economic activity appears to have ended last summer, and the data we've received since then have been fully consistent with uh, the notion that economic activity is generally improving right now. I'll discuss first the sectors where that improvement is most evident. Later on, I'll talk about some of the uh, lagging sectors in, in uh, the, the, the growth picture. And I'll start with housing. Uh, it was key to, as I said, the boom and the contraction. Um, several indicators of housing sales and construction uh, show that activity hit a low point early last year and has risen moderately uh, since then. For instance, single-family housing starts increased by 35%. New home sales have increased by 8%. Uh, and there are signs that home prices have bottomed out as well. And this is particularly important just because of the role of home prices and home values in household wealth and the equity people have in their homes and thus in household sp spending. <clears throat> so, uh, for example, a widely followed uh, index of existing home uh, prices nationwide rose from May to October, a seasonally adjusted 3.9%. Uh, notable stabilization in home prices has occurred. But even with these welcome gains, uh, new housing construction remains we well below uh, the levels that you would associate with 
you might call it a steady state with the rate that you would need to build new houses for the growth in, the natural growth in population that occurs over time. But that's to be expected, I think. Um, what with given, uh, what with hindsight appears to have been um, a substantial overinvestment in housing. Essentially, we've gotten ahead of ourselves in building housing. We need some time for demand to catch up with the supply that we already have. And in the interim, I expect residential construction to be relatively um, quiet. As a result, um, residential construction, even though it's not going to be a drag on GDP, um, it, it could experience a fairly lengthy period of adjustment uh, before any growth in residential investment um, is warranted, I think, uh, for our economy. So consumer purchases of cars and trucks fell off pretty rapidly as well in this recession. Began to tail off in 07, then very sharply in 2008. Sales hit a low point last February and then increased very gradually before this cash for clunkers program kicked in in July and August and boosted uh, car sales pretty substantially. So the analysts expected a payback. They expected sales after the cash for clunkers program uh, had expired to be, to be much lower, but the, the payback seems to have been much smaller than a lot of analysts expected. And sales have, have improved steadily over the last four months, uh, it turns out. Now, granted, again, like with housing, sales of autos and trucks are well below the, the rate that would be needed to keep the stock of vehicles expanding in line with uh, population and economic growth. But just as with housing, um, it looks like autos are no longer going to be a drag on GDP growth. In fact, they've made some positive contributions already, and they should make positive contributions going forward. And again, that's a welcome contrast to the situation of the last two years. So those two categories seem likely to be help, uh, helping us get out of this recession. So apart from automobiles, real consumer spending, which fell slightly during the recession, uh, has also resumed an upward path. Uh, and began doing that last year. In the third quarter, consumer spending, again excluding cars and trucks, increased at a 1.6% annual rate. And many economists are expecting a somewhat larger advance to be reported for the fourth quarter. Let me be clear here, though. Consumers are by no means exuberant. And I'd point to, for evidence of that, I'd point to the rise in the savings rate, uh, which, which has reached over 4% from a a low point of 2% in August of 2008. That savings, that elevated savings rate, that rise in the savings rate, no doubt reflects a combination of apprehension about future income prospects and a desire to rebuild the wealth that was essentially depleted by the fall in uh, stock market values and in home equities, uh, home equity values. But the recovery in equity prices that we've seen uh, since early last year and the stabilization of home values, the, the, the fact that home prices seem to have hit bottom uh, in a lot of markets around the country, I think has contributed to this modest upturn in consumer spending we've seen in the last few months. As the ongoing stabilization in labor markets uh, continues, uh, and I'll say more about that in a minute, um, it, that also plays a role as well by giving consumers more confidence about their future income prospects. So let me talk to, about business investment. Um, business spending on new equipment and software uh, fell a sharp 21% in the recession, but it's also reversed course and registered positive gains. Uh, firmness in capital uh, goods spending 
may seem somewhat incongruous at this point. Given the low levels of measured capacity utilization, you may have seen there was an industrial production report today that reported on that as well. But excess capacity in some sectors doesn't mean that it's, there aren't profitable investment opportunities in some other sectors. Um, either to deploy new equipment and software to reduce costs or to improve business, business processes, improve service. And I think we're going to see a steady flow of, of that kind of investment uh, expenditure in the, in the years ahead, despite the fact that there's an overhang of excess capacity in some industries. In addition to these favorable domestic developments, uh, there's been a worldwide rebound in economic activity since the contraction we saw a year ago. And that's boosting demand for our export industries. A year ago, I'll just cover this briefly, a year ago, real exports were falling at a 30% annual rate. But in the third quarter of last year, real exports increased at almost a 25% uh, annual rate. So a sharp fall, but now a sharp rebound in export demand. So toting up all these favorable uh, demand side developments, recent estimates uh, suggest that real GDP grew at roughly three and three quarters percent annual rate over the second half of last year, from the second quarter uh, to the fourth quarter. And that's the most rapid growth we've seen over a similar time horizon for several years. Part of that growth reflects an inventory swing. Uh, earlier in last year, there was inventory liquidation at a tremendous rate that kept production, that is sales, um, I'm sorry, GDP, so it kept GDP growth below the growth in sales. So they were meeting sales out of inventories, so that means they needed to produce less, and that meant production contracted more sharply than sales did at the beginning of the year. On the flip side now, the shift to inventory accumulation, or the shift away from inventory deaccumulation, um, is going to provide a, a temporary boost to GDP growth. It means that uh, from here on out in the recovery, increases in demand have to be met out of production. They can't be met by drawing down inventories much further uh, since they're so lean uh, the way it is now. And that additional production will require hiring additional workers. That'll add to household income and that'll have a positive effect on growth going forward. Consumers, when they see this, you know, when they see... Um, employment picking up, um, when um, they see the job market stabilizing, when they see job losses dissipating, um, they recover some measure of, of confidence uh, in the future, and they start being willing to expand uh, spending, gradually at first, uh, maybe with some caution about very big-ticket commitments. But this is typical of the period immediately following a recession, and I don't see any reason why this time should be different. Indeed, we can see signs of improvement on the supply side of the economy. Industrial production has increased significantly since the low point that it hit in June of last year. Um, and um, although the midpoint, the midsummer, there was a rebound in auto production that was important in that rebound, um, even without auto production, industrial production has increased by a fairly solid uh, rate over that period. Moreover, there's a, a survey-based index uh, published by the Institute for Supply Management, which has increased substantially um, this year, or last year, I should say, and it indicates that the growth in manufacturing is fairly widespread. 
And that the new orders component of that index is particularly noteworthy, I think. It's registered even more import, uh, impressive growth over the second half of last year, and it's now at its highest level since December of 2004. These indexes, this survey, this Institute of um, Supply Management survey, has a 60-year track record of very reliable, uh, providing very reliable signals about turning points um, in uh, the, the economy, both going up and going down. And so um, the fact that, that those indexes have been notably strong in the last few months is, is quite noteworthy. One key element in the recovery is the substantial improvement in financial market conditions that has occurred um, over the course of the last year. Corporate borrowing costs have declined considerably. Interest rates on commercial paper, corporate bonds have fallen substantially. Many major banks have sold stocks successfully and now have the capital that they need to support new lending. Even if conditions turn out worse than expected, if their losses are, are worse than expected, now, granted, we often hear, and you may have encountered this in your own life, uh, anecdotal reports about business borrowers being turned down for credit, either having um, uh, an application for new credit denied or having a long-standing line of credit uh, cut off uh, by their banking institution. <clears throat> it's important to recognize, however, that in a, in a recession, many borrowers are naturally going to be less creditworthy than they were in an expansion because the economic environment they operate in is, is a riskier one. Um, even if their balance sheet is the same, even if their revenues are the same, the outlook for their revenues is, is going to be a more uncertain prospect in the midst of a recession for many firms. So it's just going to be natural that borrowers are going to face uh, tougher credit terms in a recession than they do in an expansion. That's just a natural part of the business cycle. Moreover, I think that the proper benchmark for us to, to hold the banking system to is that the banking system as a whole supplies an appropriate not, amount of credit. Not that every individual bank meets every individual customer's needs. Uh, because in a time like this, some banks are shrinking their balance sheet while others are expanding into new business lines and new geographic areas. I personally am not aware of any evidence, any evidence I, I, I take seriously, um, that the banking industry as a whole is inefficiently or inappropriately um, impeding the availability of credit in our economy. So I've been focusing so far on the places where the, uh, the improvement in the economy is, is evident. And let me talk a little bit about some of the other areas. Um, we face major challenges in commercial real estate. Um, construction is falling. Vacancy rates are rising. Falling property prices are eroding uh, owners of commercial real estate um, uh, equity positions, eroding their equity positions. Holders of many commercial-backed mortgage securities have already taken sizable losses, and uh, more losses appear to be on the horizon because of the numerous projects that are scheduled for refinancing in the coming years. Some community banks have lent heavily uh, to the commercial real estate sector and to commercial real estate developers, and many of them are now facing rising delinquencies and losses. Nobody expects a quick reversal of these trend, negative trends, and as a result, it looks likely that business investment in non-residential structures, commercial construction, read that, is likely to be a, a fairly sizable drag on U.S. growth going forward. <clears throat> Having said that, though, the commercial construction is a, only a small portion of real GDP. 
smaller than housing was at the peak. And so the size of that drag is going to be limited, but it's going to be a drag nonetheless. More worrisome is the labor market, the state of the labor market. The number of people employed has fallen in 23 out of the last 24 months. The exception was a tiny, minuscule increase this past November. The unemployment rate has more than doubled uh, to 10% uh, in December. Wages are under pressure. Average hourly earnings in December were up only 2.2% over the previous December, and that's half the rate of increase we were seeing in 2007. In the next few months, an overall, as overall economic activity continues to improve, employment's likely to return to an upward trajectory. Um, indeed, we've seen a few initial signs of improving labor demand, such as a big increase in the average work week, something that uh, has a distinct cyclical pattern. Um, in a couple of months ago, October, uh, increase in the average work week, generally associated with recovering production and recovering demand for labor. And in indeed, overall, the rate at which um, employment is falling has diminished substantially um, over the course of the last year. <clears throat> Virginia's labor markets um, also deteriorated broadly in the recession. For example, unemployment also doubled um, over the last two years. Um, but Virginia labor markets seem to be a bit further along in the healing process. The unemployment rate in Virginia peaked at 7.1% versus 10%, uh, the peak now for the national market, and has edged down to 6.6% in November, the last month for which we have data. So Virginia seems to be doing better than the country as a whole in, in terms of labor market performance. But despite that, um, even the most optimistic forecasters don't expect a rapid improvement in national labor market conditions. And this is something we're going to have to monitor carefully um, in uh, the months and uh, quarters ahead uh, at the Federal Reserve. So putting the whole picture together, positive sectors and the weaker sectors, I think it's most likely that the economy will grow at a reasonable rate this coming year. Housing should continue to recover from a very depressed state. Consumers should gradually expand spending this year in the two-thirds of the economy, so that's a substantial help. Business investment on equipment and software uh, should make something of a comeback this year. Uh, it's stabilized in the middle of last year and has picked up since then. Um, and these components of demand should overcome a continuing drag from commercial construction. So when I give a talk like this, focused as it is on the growth in the economy from the, the deep, uh, depressed level of economic activity we reached at the end of the contraction, I'm often asked about how economists can be so upbeat in light of the obvious economic challenges we have, the severe weakness in job market, uh, the low level of residential construction and commercial construction. My answer begins with the observation that there are obvious serious problems coming out of every recession. We have a historical recession, uh, record of 31 recessions going back over 100 years uh, where we have a lot of data and we can really study this. And if you drill down into the details, there's always something. There's always something weak as the economy begins to recover. Uh, there's always some reason for concern. <clears throat> if you looked out at those details of all those recessions, some common elements emerge. I already touched on one of them, which is the inventory cycle, uh, and that's boosting production right now. 
More important, in my view, is something I also touched on a little bit uh, before, which is the behavior of individual consumers during a recession. So many workers lose their job in a downturn, but a much greater number of workers remain employed. Now, many of them, if not most of them, take the precaution of cutting back on spending and deferring major big-ticket uh, purchases just in case something happens to their own job. They're not sure how far the deterioration in economic conditions is going to go. They're not sure about their own industry, their own firm. They're not sure if they lost their job, what their prospects for finding a new job would be. So, for example, we see labor market quits go down. People stop leaving their job as rapidly and uh, hold on to the job they have. Another sign consistent with that. As the recovery begins to take hold, though, these workers gradually become more confident about their future job and income uh, in the future as well. They began to spend a larger fraction of their income. Um, it, it becomes clear to them that the most dire scenarios that they had feared and were taking precautions against will not be realized. Similarly, many firms find it prudent to reduce capital spending during a recession. But as demand re revives, these same firms see an increasing number of viable, profitable, attractive uh, investment opportunities. In short, the, the, the deferred spending that takes place, the deferral of spending that takes place in a recession creates pent-up demand by consumers and businesses. And that gradually bolsters spending as the recession ends. And I don't see any reason for this cycle to be different. In fact, we're seeing that right now with the, the, the uptick in, in investment and consumer spending that we've seen in the last few months. As always, there are some risks around the outlook. Always the case that there's some uncertainty. The labor market could conceivably recover more slowly uh, than I and many others expect. And if it did, that would restrain consumer spending and dampen growth. On the other hand, um, household incomes and household confidence about their future incomes could conceivably rebound more vigorously than many people expect. And if that was the case, consumer spending could expand more briskly and we'd get a, a stronger jolt to growth uh, in the coming year. It's worth mentioning a risk that seems particularly prominent in this recovery, seems uniquely prominent, I should say, in this recovery. Firms and individuals seem to face major uncertainties surrounding federal policies on trade, the environment, health care, financial regulation. This gets a lot of commentary. I hear a lot of anecdotes all around the Fifth Federal Reserve District about this. Fiscal challenges at the state level also contribute to an uncertain business climate, and Virginia is no exception given the large budget gap that remains to be closed here. For businesses considering a commitment to a new capital spending project or new hiring, it can be difficult to estimate the after-tax yields for some new endeavors in an environment that's so rich with proposals for increased taxes and increased regulation. This uncertainty, which I sense has not been so pronounced in previous recoveries, could well bias firms as we go forward towards deferring new investment and hiring commitments, and that could lead to lower productivity growth and hence lower real income growth and lower overall growth um, as the recovery uh, un unfolds. Turning now to the outlook for inflation and monetary policy, a year ago many economists were expecting that the exceptionally low level of economic activity would tend to depress inflation, perhaps even push it below zero. 
Things turned out differently, though. Inflation expectations, which embody projections about the future conduct of monetary policy, what people expect inflation to be in the next few years, have remained fairly stable according to the best empirical measures that we have. And this has had an anchoring effect on core inflation, which averaged about 1.5% last year. In my view, that's a very good performance, inflation running around 1.5%, and I hope it continues. Fortunately, the risk of a pronounced reduction in inflation seems to have diminished substantially at this point. During the recovery period ahead, we may face an increasing risk of inflation edging upward instead of downward. And that's because that's sometimes occurred in past recoveries. And it's a, a, a risk I think we need to remain alert for. Risk appears minimal at this point, but we'll have to watch very carefully as the recovery unfolds and keep inflation and inflation expectations uh, from drifting around either way, up or down. What we will need to be careful about at the Federal Reserve is how and when we withdraw the very considerable monetary uh, policy stimulus that's now in place. This is something that requires care during any recovery period, but this time it's going to be a little different. This time the Federal Reserve will have two policy instruments to focus on and to deal with and decide on rather than just one. The Fed traditionally has targeted an, the overnight federal funds rate and that required appropriately adjusting the supply of monetary liabilities, currency plus bank reserves, so that supply met demand at the targeted federal funds rate. That's how we did it. Varying the federal, our target for the federal funds rate required that we vary the supply of reserves, and that, but that change in the target federal funds rate had an effect on a broad array of other interest rates, and through that, those channels influenced economic growth and inflation. Since October of 2008, as many of the bankers in the room are no doubt well aware, um, the reserve banks have had the authority to pay explicit interest on the reserves that banks keep on deposit at the Federal Reserve. This is a liability of ours, deposit liability of ours. Uh, we pay interest on that. This gives us the ability to vary independently the size of our monetary liabilities and the interest rate we pay on those reserves, because now the interest rate on reserves has the same sort of role that the target federal funds rate does, in that it, it, it serves as a benchmark, an anchor to which a, an array of other interest rates are connected. And by changing that interest rate, we can influence a wide array of market interest rates and affect growth and inflation that way. But we also have the ability to vary the amount of reserves. If we increase the supply of reserves from where it is now, Banks aren't going to lend it for less than the rate that they can get on their deposit at the Federal Reserve. So it's not going to change the interest rate on reserves and the general level of market rates um, for us to increase um, uh, uh, bank reserves in that way. So um, when the time comes to withdraw monetary stimulus, uh, we will be able to raise the interest rate on reserves. We will also be able to reduce the supply of bank reserves, which has its own independent influence on the array of market rates. Or we could do both. And we're going to have to think carefully as we go down the road this year about how to sequence those um, and how to time uh, those moves. 
So despite this added complication, the fact that we have these two, two rules, let me reassure you that the objective of monetary policy remains the same, and that is price stability, the best contribution we can make to economic growth. As always, that will require that we keep inflation expectations firmly anchored. And since those expectations uh, reflect views about the likely future conduct of monetary policy, that puts an extra onus on us to choose carefully when and how to remove monetary stimulus so that we don't inadvertently give rise to the expectation that we're willing to countenance a rise in inflation during this recovery. But this is the same difficulty we face after every recession. For my part, I'm going to be looking uh, for a time at which economic growth is strong enough and well enough established uh, before I'm going to be willing to uh, begin withdrawing monetary stimulus. So while, as I've said, the economic outlook for the year ahead appears to be brighter than the year that just ended, thankfully, our economy does face several significant challenges over a longer term, as I mentioned at the outset, and I'll spend a minute or two touching on these uh, now. The first one I see is the time path for federal uh, budget deficits in the future that are implied by current and planned uh, fiscal policies. It should be self-evident that any government's debt cannot grow indefinitely at a rate uh, that's much faster than the economy as a whole grows. Um, but that, in fact, is what is implied by current law. Ultimately, something has to change. E either taxes are raised, spending is reduced, or the real value of debt is eroded through inflation. And I should mention that that latter course is one I'll vigorously oppose. While economists can debate the effects of particular changes in spending and taxes, particular fiscal policy initiatives, at some point, a government debt that grows more rapidly than GDP, that grows relative to the size of GDP, inevitably competes with private borrowing, leading to higher interest rates, slower capital accumulation, and thus a slower growth in productivity and standards of living for our, our people. When that shortfall gets large enough, these effects can be exacerbated by ambiguity about how that, that ultimate solution is going to come, out, come about. Is it going to be taxes? Is it going to be um, spending that's going to adjust? Failure to establish credible plans now for bringing our fiscal policy back into balance could dampen growth in the years ahead. Another challenge arises in the area of financial regulatory reform. In the wake of the crisis we've just been through, it makes eminent sense to re-examine our financial regulatory system. I've argued elsewhere that the most important step we can take uh, as a country is to establish clear and credible limits on the federal financial safety net. To me, that seems essential to assure financial stability going forward. That safety net has grown considerably in the last two years because of the res our response to the crisis. I believe that the crisis itself was in no small measure the result of our not having ahead of time clear limits on government support for financial institutions. Leverage and excessive risk-taking were encouraged by the beliefs that large parts of the financial system were implicitly protected. And those beliefs have been ratified through the actions we took in 2007 and 2008. If we retain a, a stance of official ambiguity as to when such protection 
will be forthcoming, for which firms it will be forthcoming, and for which of their liabilities it will be forthcoming in the future, then I suspect that our susceptibility to disruptive financial crises will continue to grow. And with each successive crisis, the financial safety net is likely to get bigger. A more expansive safety net, an expansion in the federal financial safety net, is inevitably going to require more stringent regulation. But regulatory systems are inherently limited in their capacity to completely offset the incentive effects, the incentive distortions, really, that are due to the financial safety net. So just like ambiguity about the path of future federal deficits, continued ambiguity about the federal financial safety net could limit our capacity to growth for growth going forward. Finally, let me comment on this. Some observers have argued that the financial reform agenda should include changes in the role and governance of the Federal Reserve System, particularly the Federal Reserve Banks. One proposal would extend the GAO's authority to audit the Fed uh, operations, extend that authority, which already exists and covers a substantial portion of our operations, expand that uh, authority to cover monetary policy decisions, so that they could mo- they could uh, a congressman could order a GAO audit of a of a of a monetary policy decision, an interest rate increase, for example, shortly after it occurred. Other proposals would alter our governance structure by making reserve bank directors or or reserve bank presidents um, presidential appointees subject to confirmation by the Senate. Now I know it might seem self-serving for a Fed insider to talk about something like this and to object to changes like this. But I firmly believe, and I'm here to tell you, that such moves would present a very serious risk, in my view, to the effectiveness of our institution at delivering good monetary policy outcomes and ultimately uh, to economic growth and stability. If you look across time and across countries, and economists have spent a lot of time doing this, there is abundant evidence that economic policy and macroeconomic performance are better when the central bank's monetary policy decisions are shielded from political pressures of the moment. For an illustrative case in the United States, one need only look as far back as the 1970s uh, when political influence on the Federal Reserve led to high and quite volatile inflation that disrupted economic growth quite seriously. The governance of the Federal Reserve System that we have in place now um, was crafted by the founders in in legislation passed in 1913, adapted in the Great Depression in the 1930s, and balances accountability with ultimate authority resting in this agency in Washington, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, and independence. Um, with the participation of non-political policy leaders, Federal Reserve officials from around the country. Now, the performance of our economy in the last two years has clearly been unsatisfactory. I will grant that. And I will grant that it could be the case that policy mistakes were made and contributed to our policy, uh, the performance of the economy in the last couple of years. But the, the... balanced hybrid governance structure the Federal Reserve has, I think has given us good record over the last three decades, dating back to the early 1980s, when coming out of the recessions and and inflation of the 70s, we brought inflation down, kept inflation fairly low, fairly stable, and continue to do that. 
led to longer expansions and generally milder, with this exception of the past recession, milder recessions. So I think it's given us a good record over the last three decades, and I think that disrupting that balance that's inherent in that structure would pose another long-term challenge for our economy that I, I think we should avoid.